welcome to Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 740. With me today is Richard Jaw from the UK. Richard, uh, how are things there in the UK? Because it was bank holiday last weekend, right? Last weekend, yes. Okay. Well, first of all, happy Labor Day to you, Jim, and to all your North American colleagues. Canada, I think, has Labor Day as well. Yes, I believe they do today so yeah uh, happy holidays to all of you north american brethren yes yeah, all good here thank you we're enjoying an indian summer as we call it here so the temperatures are mid-20s for the next week or so so yeah happy days we are in the same thing indian summer has arrived early this year it is cranked ratcheted up into the mid 90s today it's been three days of mid 90s uh rain moves in tomorrow and then the, the temperatures plummet back into the 70s <laughs> so there we go Oh, well, summer's got to end sometime. Although I don't, I question whether it actually began. Hey, anyway. the good news is that we're we're getting back on top of things here. Yes, the we day are. after the races, so we're making up for lost time. We have to with ten races <laughs> in thirteen weeks. Uh, they will come fast and furious as we blow through uh, the rest of the season and get done uh, ending in Valencia. So uh, that's kind of a good way to segue because we have somebody who wants to talk about why. Our, about races ending in Valencia, and that would be Scott Baldwin. Scott Baldwin has written in, and uh, he had some things to say. He was saying that basically is that the reason uh, we end in Valencia is because that's where all the wives of Dorna, uh, I guess the wags, right? Wives and girlfriends, isn't that what they say of footballers? Something like that. Correct. <laughs> they all, they love to shop in Valencia. They have all the nightlife. They have everything there that they want and there for into season party keeps him there and he has a belief as well that uh that that's part of the reason laguna seca stayed on the schedule as long as it did because of all the great shopping carmel now i've never been to carmel i'm assuming it's fantastic shopping i have no idea i guess there's some truth to it i mean i think laguna was always long in the tooth and i'm a little worried about coda myself really in the longevity of it they're ever since the rise of popularity of Formula One, people have gone away from that MotoGP weekend. You know, in the time that I've been there, it's seemingly becoming less and less people, but more and more people going to Formula One. So the sustainability of the track is there, but are they willing to pay whatever the sanctioning fee is to keep to keep that race? I have no idea. Really, there's not another circuit in the U.S. that they could go to without some serious modifications to the circuit in, a, in an effort for safety um, or just to be at the the grade level of anything from the FIA. But oh, your thoughts, do you really think that the wives hold all that power, Rich? Uh, well, I don't know. I've always <laughs> My had a power. <laughs> real <laughs> sort of antipathy towards Valencia as a track and particularly as a end of season track. I, I just don't really get it. I just don't think it's suitable for MotoGP in particular. Um, is it, kind of the spanish connection i think without wishing to be too controversial i think it is there is some suggestion i heard spoken over the weekend about or possibly on another podcast about the possibility of some of these spanish tracks rotating so that we get maybe two or three rather than four but they alternate between different tracks which i think would be a more equitable thing particularly as MotoGP looks to go to further further afield in terms of other tracks getting a look in i mean it's a real problem for me that we don't go to Kyle Army, for example, given the binders. And Africa isn't represented at all and Kyle Army's a good track. So I'd happily 
no offense to the Spanish listeners, because there are some, you know, most of the tracks in Spain are great. I don't think Valencia is particularly brilliant, but I, I trade one of the Spanish races for Carlami any day of the week. So whether it's to do with shopping, I don't know. It's a convenient end point, I suppose. Um, Laguna, I can't really comment. I've never been there, unfortunately. So yeah. don't know. I mean, Laguna, there's concrete way too close to the racetrack. It is very tight and twisty. It's the Valencia of the U.S., in my opinion. Um, you know, a lot of money was spent by Yamaha to get the race to come back there, and it was eventually just going to outgrow it. I know I went there for the first race in 2005, and it was over four hours to get in and over eight and a half hours to get out. And I mean, I, since then, they have changed it. They've got buses that run in and out but it's not accessible it's not easily accessible uh you know there isn't a major highway that's one exit up or three or four minutes from you to get to there to disperse the traffic so it was always going to be there i mean i guess you could kind of almost say the same thing about austin but there are several different ways that you can get around there for that but anyway uh to continue on with what scott says he says talking about honda and the problems they have and he said the problem is Honda does not listen. Now, that is a true statement. I remember back, McDoom would tell them that he wanted something changed on the bike and they wouldn't do it. Um, took doing quite some time to convince them to remove the big bang engine from his Honda and put a screaming engine back in so that he could ride it, uh, which he finally got. Um, you know, Stoner said he quit being a test rider for Honda because they wouldn't listen to anything he had to say. Um, supposedly... I don't know if this one's true or not because I don't remember it, but it could have been that, you know, Marquez wanted things changed on the bike when he first started riding it. They said, nope, we gave you a championship winning bike. Just learn how to ride it, which is always possible. And, uh, you know, I think there's some truth to that when you say, Rich. Yeah, I'm trying to think of what the word is. Is it hubris? I think the possibly part of the issue for Honda in particular is that because they have always been and, and remain, of course, but such a stellar engineering company they basically pretty much dominated for decades in the sport didn't they okay there were blips when yamaha popped up or suzuki popped up or whatever but pretty much honda's been the constant so perhaps in a a case of um arrogance is not the right word but if you're winning all the time perhaps you just think it's because you're just the best at engineering the bike and occasionally things go awry and obviously more recently things have gone awry pretty badly and they're now on the path the slow path hopefully to building back up again and bringing the fight back to the european factories as per the kind of field of play that we see in 2023 so did they ignore their riders probably but you might argue that they were in a position to do so at the time and they just went out and bought the best rider and told them to ride the bike that they had. We know the whole Rossi thing, why he left and all the rest of it. And perhaps he left them with some egg on their face over that. So Stoner, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's a good point, but you know, they did rule the roost for a long, long time. So perhaps they were in a position to have that kind of attitude. Yeah. I, I think they are that way uh, to some extent, you know, they've got a plan. And but Ducati had that same problem when Rossi went there, they ignored him. They literally, nope, this is the data from the bike and this is what it should be doing. And you just, for lack of any better, better 
words, they told him you need to learn to ride it as well. Right. I mean, this is Valentino Rossi. So it's kind of hard to sit there and say that, you know, our bike is so good and you can't ride it. That's a bit uh, presumptive, but Scott finishes up by saying that just Yamaha just is super slow to react. And they are, they completely are. I mean, I remember vividly back in the nineties when Randy was winning titles on the, on the 500, uh, you know, he would come in and complain viciously to Kenny Roberts about how bad this bike was. And Kenny looked at him and said, if you keep winning on it, they're not fixing it. It's the classic Ferrari thing, right? If it's not a broken, I don't want to fix it up. Yeah. And if, and if, and I don't, I don't think Yamaha has the engineering resource or the monetary funds that Honda have to play with. And, you know, I mean, we shall see what happens, but I do appreciate the kind words at the end, Scott. And uh, with that, uh, let's get into silly season news. Yeah. Some more things have been here. Well, mostly uh, Moto2 stuff here, but well, there's a few MotoGP things. So first off, Joe Roberts will return to the American Racers team for 24. Bit of a homecoming for Joe, but that means that SDK is out at American Racers. Now, from what we learned over this weekend, there is a big argument that they had over arm pump surgery and the recovery of said arm pump. Now, this one's interesting because Simon Crayfire had was talking to the head of the American racing team, and they were saying that Sean Dylan Kelly, SDK, did have arm pump. And over the five-week break, he went under the knife to have that fixed. His recovery stalled, and he had to go back in and get another operation to fix something in there. So something in the first surgery didn't either work correctly or there was something that was botched that needed to be fixed. So he goes back under the knife again. His idea was to return and was to ride at Silverstone to which the team said, no, you need to sit and recover. And we would prefer if you didn't, get back on the bike until we get to India, the Indian GP, which would be after Mazzano. I think India is after right, right after Mazzano, if I yep. remember correctly. But Sean Dillon Kelly is saying, well, look, I'm riding a supermoto. I'm riding motocross. Everything's fine. I want to be on the bike. The team's like, no, you're not going to be on the bike. So now they have essentially agreed to part ways and I'm not sure where SDK is going. Doesn't appear that he's got a spot in the Moto 2 paddock. I can't see him getting like a Moto 3 ride. The kid is fairly tall. So fitting on a Moto 3 bike is not going to be his best option. You almost got to think that he's coming back home. Mm. Now, admittedly, a world super sport ride potentially exists. And you could maybe argue that there's a world super bike ride potentially out there somewhere but i think i think sean dylan kelly's headed back to the u.s personal opinion don't know if it's true or not just that's just the way i see it going through so so any thoughts on the american racing squad for next year (laughs) well i mean there's obviously a lot more going on behind the scenes Uh, even though the discussion you were referring to that simon craver had with the head of and i I, sorry i apologize i forget his name off the top of my head but um uh, it sounded as if there was some ructions in the background that's how it came across to me because i heard the same thing that you heard jim 
quite why I mean SDK was making some progress this year. Yep. Sort of maybe incremental steps and and whatnot. And obviously the arm pump thing was a problem. And we didn't have a particularly stellar first year. I think that's fair to say. But Moto Two is a hell of a class to come into, particularly when you haven't come up through the European system and then in through Moto Three and so on. So he was making good progress and we sort of had signaled out a few times in recent races that he'd had some pretty decent, you know, either qualifying performances or some race performances and so it was a great shame when he went off with this protracted arm pump thing so clearly something's going on behind the scenes there but as to what he does next i agree jim i think probably all roads lead back to moto america don't they because i can't see another moto 2 team taking him on unless he had a huge pot of cash to bring in terms of sponsorship which i doubt um moto 3 no World Super Sport. Well, I think he's just a bit of an unknown quantity, probably. So he's likely to go back to where he's known and respected and has done very well in the past because he's, you know, got a good record in Moto America. But it'll be, I, I feel sorry for the guy actually because he was starting to make steps and it's a shame to see that cut short. But Joe Roberts coming back, that's logical. He's not had a good time at Iltel Trans. Rory Skinner, a bit like um, SDK, really, having a bit of a anonymous first season in Moto 2, but then coming in from a superbike to a Moto2. Look at Jake Dixon. I mean, it's taking him, what's this, his fourth or fifth season in Moto2 now? Now we're starting to see the kind of rider that he is, but it takes a long time to get there unless you're, you know, kind of alien territory, like one or two people that are in Moto2, but they're the exception, not the norm. So I feel sorry for SDK. I won't keep going on about it, but yeah, it's a shame what's happened really. But yeah, I think Moto America is where we'll see him next year. So Aaron Kinnett is going to leave Hans Racing to race at Frantic Racing next year. So we know that's where Kinnett's going. This one's a wild one. Vietti is rumored to be going to KTM IO. I personally am shocked by that one. But IO has a reputation of pulling people to that team that we would look at and go, no way, and they turn them into superstars. So it's possible. You know, I have not heard it to be confirmed. I just know it as a rumor. It makes a lot of sense, really, to me, because Vietti, you know, the first half of last year, we thought he was a champion, and then everything just unraveled. And then he's been anonymous this year, then he wins in Red Bull Ring, and then this weekend, well, okay, he didn't have such a bad result in the end, as we'll come to, but again, not really the rider that we saw in Spielberg a week or so ago but you just think you know clearly he has massive class and does he need that io touch just to bring out the best now it hasn't worked for albert arenas who's the guy that's heading out of that team we assume that acosta is out of the team as well assuming he goes up to moto gp so potentially two spots to be filled but i kind of get the vietti thing the connect one yeah i mean that's a bit more kind of surprising he came second this weekend, as we're going to talk about. He's got all the potential, but he's just really wildly inconsistent, isn't he? So, and let's not forget that the Pons team won't exist next year because Cito Pons has effectively sold that team to the, let's try and get this right, the MT Helmets Moto 3 team will take on that Moto 2 operation. So it remains to be seen who ends up there. But yeah, lots of moving in Moto 2, which is good. I mean, I like a bit of a shake up in the order. Yeah, I I mean, I get your point with Vietti at Io, 
but so maybe it will work out, but I would have been less shocked if Canet would have went to IO. Well, you kind I, of feel I, that, that well, uh, who's to say, well, well where, it, did, where did you say he's off to? He's, he's guaranteed to be oh, moving to Frantic. Frantic, yeah. Or Fan, MT Helmets. Frantic or Frantic? Fantec, I think it is. Fantec, okay. Yeah. I thought it was yeah. Frantic. I obviously no, that, can't listen properly. That might be, because Garcia is staying in that team, isn't he? It'll be, it'll be yes. branded un, under yes. the MT Helmets, I believe. Yes. That's that's what's going to happen. So, yes. um, yeah, Connect would do well in the IO team, I suspect. It's a bit of a shame in a way, as an experiment, that that's not what's going to happen. Uh, yeah. But, well, I mean, maybe Aki IO considered him and thought, no, it's that's possible. not the guy for us. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. So as Rich has alluded to, Cito Pons has sold his uh, squad, his Moto2 squad, to the MTI Helmets Moto3 squad, who will now run in Moto3 and Moto2. And along with that, as Rich has correctly said, Garcia is staying at the Pons team, which is now the MTI team. The question is who's partnering him. That's the question that we have. We don't know who will be in there with him. But the big rumor is that Ogura is going to move to MTI and leave the Team Asia squad and partner Garcia. Now, I think this to be a done deal, although I'm going to sit on the fence with this one because I'm, I'm not really sure. But I believe that it's a done deal because I, Ogura wants a different challenge and he wants to re, needs motivation to move forward. Either way, if Agura goes there, that's a huge bump in the Honda road that Honda doesn't need and also speaks to the desperation that their MotoGP team is in if the second son of Japanese motorsport says, yeah, I'm going to swerve over here. <laughs> so uh, that one's a bit of a conundrum there for me. So, I almost fell off the chair when I heard that one, to be honest. I mean, that is, uh, unless there are deals being done, you know, in terms of parking somebody in a temporary spot before they go somewhere else. I mean, I, I would be absolutely staggered if the kind of the close linkage to Honda is severed as part of that move. I just cannot believe it, Jim. I, I really can't because Agira, okay, he's not had a good year, but he's been coming back gradually from a terrible wrist injury. And we got a glimpse, you know, backing it in everywhere this weekend on that bike. I mean, he's a real talent, Agira, and the kind of guy, I mean, if it were me, obviously we don't know what Agira thinks himself and his management, but if I were Honda, I'd be wanting to stick him in place of Nakagami, to be honest with you, in LCR, because they would need a fresh young talent to go in and just ride the bike as it is, because you know, as we'll, as we'll come to, I mean, Honda in all sorts of woes still, and that's not going to change. Obviously, it's going to take them a lot of time, although there are seeds of progress here and there. But yeah, that's a really surprising move, that one with Agira. So I'd be fascinated to find out, which I'm sure we will do in the fullness of time, quite what the contractual arrangements are there, because I cannot believe that Honda are letting him go. No way. Yeah, there's some something somewhere is amiss, and uh, we'll find out. All right, the final Moto2 two, uh, rider announcement. Dixon re-signed with Aspar to ride in Moto2 again. Although there still is this persistence that he has an option to ride a Ducati next year, I think Jake's going to stay. 
your you agree disagree well the announcement is that he's with Aspar again in Moto2 next year alongside Ethan Gravara who's been largely you know invisible this year but it's a tricky transition some people make it quickly and others take a bit of time so perhaps Gravara will have a better year next year but well as we'll come to I, somewhere in my notes later on I've written what a crying shame Jake's not going up to MotoGP next year because I think this weekend of all weekends really proved that probably that is the right move for him to make now not in a year or two's time if that opportunity comes back to him so yeah surprising because he is a big bike rider as I've said many times I mean he did really well in BSB for several seasons so he knows his way around okay a BSB bike is different to MotoGP bike and it's taken Jake quite a time to get comfortable on the Moto2 machine but this weekend in particular we saw a kind of a rider that thought his way to the win and that's perhaps not the rider that we've seen up until now we've seen glimpses of it but not quite this polished so again fascinated to see what happens as the year goes on I mean not every weekend will turn out like this one of course because every race is different but I think that old adage about once you've won your first race, things get a bit, not easier, but the pressure shifts, doesn't it? And he looked really assured at the weekend. And I, I don't know what you thought, Jim, we'll come to it. But when he dropped back, I thought, yeah, he's just kind of, he's just biding his time. He's keeping his tyre alive. And a couple of people around him who have arguably higher pedigrees, uh, allegedly, didn't quite manage the same trick. So... You know, he he rode a really great race. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about that when we get to Moto Two. I think yeah. there's a lot to be said about that, and we need to dissect it some. Yeah, uh, in there. Uh, Moto GP signings. Um, Bezeki signs with Mooney. I think we all knew this was going to happen. His flirt, his flirtation with the Pramac second seat was always flirtatious. Um, he was always going to stay with Rossi. Well, wouldn't you stay with Rossi? I would. Right. I mean, <laughs> kind of. If you're going to hitch your horse to something. Hitch it to Rossi and see where it takes you. And it's so, a salutary lesson in the Bastianini at the Works Ducati squad in amongst all of this as well, isn't there? In the sense yes. that sometimes if you're comfortable somewhere and you're doing well, not necessarily a great idea to upset the apple cart, as we say over here. So I think he's made the right decision. Yeah, he's on a year-old bike, but let's be honest, it's a Ducati, so mm. he'll get the most out of it. He will. So Pekka and Bastianini stay together at Lovano Ducati. So the rumors that Bastianini was going to lose out, that didn't happen, didn't pan out. Uh, it's To me, that's the right thing, only in the sense that Bastianini is a, is a supreme talent, and he w- had unforeseen issues. He got clotted in Porto Mayo and broke his shoulder, which is difficult. And then he really hasn't had his feet back under him. And then, well, he has problems this weekend as well. So... We'll get to that when we cover the MotoGP side of things. But some a lot of the pieces are now starting to come together, like where, who's where and why in, in MotoGP and where they all are. Except for there is still that one seat open at that one at that one team, and there's one former world champ who is said to be eyeing that seat. I think we all know who that is. What, the 93? <laughs> I think so. Mm. Which... There, I mean, if you, you know, if you if you're willing to dive into X knee Twitter, um, 
and you're willing to sit, wade into that wade into that cesspool without waders on, uh, you will see that there are many people who say that if Marquez does leave Honda, Repsol's gone because Repsol will simply follow him because he's a Spanish juggernaut of sponsorship. I don't know that to be true. Even if it did happen, Honda's not going to stop racing in the top class. They will simply fund it themselves. And we may have the one bike that I think was the most beautiful Honda ever. And that was with McDoon raced in HRC <laughs> colors in 94. Well, Bradle used to bring out the HRC colors uh-huh. from time to time with his They're wild pretty. cards, didn't we? Yeah, nice yeah. bike. Doohan's bike was super. I think it was, I think it was 95. It was a 95 bike. Was, that Honda was something special as far as paint. I really thought that was one of the best paint jobs on a race bike ever. So we'll shall see. So with that, we only have some World Superbike and BSB news. So why don't you finish us up with that, Rich? Yeah, just very quickly on the news. So I think this is official. I quickly jumped onto Facebook, which I hardly ever go on to, but it just popped up on my kind of notification thing on my phone literally half an hour ago, which was quite a long statement from Jonathan Ray to say that he is leaving the Kawasaki racing team, despite the fact that he has a contract next year, but obviously contracts are there to be broken. So no announcement on where he's going to go, but I think we can say with almost certainty that he will be replacing inverted commas, Toprak, Razgatioglu at the Yamaha, Patty Yamaha team next year. So, yeah, that's a big, big old bit of news, really, in terms of World Mm. Superbike. Probably we're not going to do it the justice that it deserves, but that's the news there. And quite a few things going on in BSB, but, well, just very, very quickly, Jason O'Halloran is moving across to the Kawasaki team in BSB because the McCams Yamaha squad are pulling out basically at the end of this season after many years of success. So that was a quick bit of news there. The main piece of news, regrettably, and very unfortunately in BSB, is the very sad news over the weekend that Paul Bird, boss of the the juggernaut, is the only word you can really use to describe the PBM Ducati team, Years and years. I mean, I forget how many championships they pulled, but seven or eight, I think, BSB titles. Uh, Paul Bird very sadly succumbed to a, a short illness in hospital and died some point over the weekend. I mean, I mean, it is a tragic thing. I mean, he was not an old man. Uh, a colourful past, certainly, and quite a colourful character, but an absolute... Um, well, I don't know what the word is really, an absolute behemoth really in the BSB paddock, quite how the championship gets over this one, I don't know. I mean, hopefully the PBM team continues. Um, I think they're kind of first and third or first and second in the championship at the minute. They're certainly up there. Tommy Bridewell in that team is leading the championship at the moment. Um yeah, just really, really sad news. So we stuck a tweet out at the weekend just to give our condolences to the family, the team, all the fans, the riders, etc. I mean, the history of that team is immense. So we cannot underestimate the significance of that guy's passing, Jim. So mm-hmm. um, Autumn Park in a week or so's time, is go- or two weeks from now, is going to be a pretty sombre affair. Um, I'm sure Stuart Higgs and the team at BSB will do a magnificent job, as they always do, of recognising you know, towering talents that are lost to the sport. Um, they've done it many, many times, and I'm sure they'll do it again. So, yeah, 
our deepest condolences to everybody concerned and that's really all there is to say on the matter but yeah sad news in bsb very sad news but we have happy news we have happy things to talk about and that's the racing that came uh courtesy of the circuit de catalonia we'll start with saturday's moto gp sprint race um the front row of it consisted of Benyaya, who qualified with a tra- all-out track record of a 138.639. So in the cooler, overclass, cloudy conditions that were existing on Saturday, uh, he wound up having a record run. Then it was an then it was the Aprilias that showed well after that. Alessio Spargaro, um, Oliveira, Vinales, then Jorge Martin and Johan Zarco on the first two rows. For that's for the sprint race, and that's how the lineup for the race on Sunday. But in the sprint race, Ben Yaya gets a whole shot, a great whole shot. He gets out in front of Martin. Then Yalas then blows by Martin. Um, Pizeki was 10th, and then he shot all the way up to fifth. And Oliveira, he just simply decided to go backwards in this race. Uh, Alish would wind up moving his way up from his starting spot to get to second. He had fallen back, I think, like fourth or fifth at the beginning of that. That, and then he rode his way up to second after a few after a couple of laps. Uh, Martin blew off turn one. A lot of people were going way late, way deep into that. Um, he was amazing that he actually slid between the Aprilias and didn't hit anybody or take anybody out. Um, but he did uh, tumble down the order there for a little bit. Paul Sparger would fall off during the race. But uh, Bagnaya and uh, Alessio Spargo were having a good go, were having a good go at each other. They were definitely hooked up and they were pulling away from Inyala's about halfway through. They had pulled a pretty good gap. Then it was like you realize the race is going to be between Bagnaya and Alesh to see what was going to happen. And Alesh kind of tries to get by at turn one. But he can't quite get it pulled off. And he kind of he keeps trying it again. You know, Vignaya is very good on the brakes. He gets very late with the brakes. The Ducati is one of the more stable, if not the most stable bike on the brakes heading into that turn one. But with 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 only six laps to go, Aleish does finally get by at turn one. He makes the move finally stick. Uh then after Benyaya, it was Vignala's Bender and Oliveira. Bender having now raced his way up. This, the Bender being a Sunday man also is a Saturday man when it comes to sprints. So he was moving forward on the KTM as well. Aleish has the pace. He had half a second on everybody as it was going through. Basically, Aleish checked out at the end of this one. And Aleish would win with a... Uh, but there was a great last lap battle that took place uh, with Vinaya, uh, Vinales and Bender, Martin and Oliveira. So that battle was great between Benyaya and Vinales, but it did turn off that way. So the podium was was Leish, then Benyaya, Vinales, Bender, Martin, Oliveira, Zarco, Bezeki, Bastini, Alex Marquez being the top 10 in the Moto3 race. It was great to see the Aprilias having form, Rich, uh, and not just the two factory Aprilias. I think having three Aprilias with form was interesting, although Oliveira was hot and cold, although we must admit that Oliveira did have a very nasty crash on Saturday morning. That destroyed his primary bike. So maybe the secondary bike, despite being the same thing, there are always just that fractionally different. I mean, you could have two frames welded up with the same guy and the same jig on the same day, and uh, they will not handle the same to a very dedicated, precise feeling talent that these guys are in MotoGP. They will know the difference between the two bikes. And uh, maybe that was just what his problem was 
for that day. But I thought it was a decent sprint race, not one of the most exciting sprint races that we've seen so far, but definitely a good race that had happened. There was the good battle early between Alesh and Benyaya, and then you did have Alesh and Benyalas having that real good little tussle to decide who was going to be in there. And I also thought that that was kind of cool that they had the sprint podium up in the fan zone. So these mm. guys were taking off on their MotoGP bikes and running up the back roads on the inside of the track to, to get to where all the fans were, which I thought was rather cool. I mean, if you're going to do that, you know, that was probably one of the coolest ones I've seen so far, as opposed to just being on the front stretch or uh, in the same area as in the pits or whatever. This I thought was different, unique, although it was a little weird seeing these guys ride their bikes on a quote street, if you will, mm. and all the cars and everything else uses. So, but your thoughts on the sprint race, Rich? Uh, a good point about the podium, Jim. And I just wonder if this is the first little inklings of Dan Rosamondo, I think his name is, you, you know, yeah. the, the guy who's come from the mm-hmm. NBA, knows about fan engagement. I don't know what you had to do to be down in that little pit because clearly that was not a huge number of people compared to the crowd size. But nevertheless, nice to see a little bit of closer engagement between the riders, the teams and the actual um, well, let's say, you know, day paying fans that were there. Lots of youngsters in the crowd as well. So, yeah, signs in the right direction. I mean, as you say, Jim, interesting race, nothing too spectacular. The thing that really caught my attention a couple of times was with the, I don't know, helicopter or drone overhead shots really emphasised how good the Aprilias were coming off the turns, even against the Ducati. Mm-hmm. You know, Ducati we know is a weapon down the straight, but it's all about coming off the turns as well. And Barcelona being the track that it is, there are some long straights with fastish turns before them. And you could really see that that Aprilia or those Aprilias were working very, very well coming out of the fast turns and making up a lot of ground on Banyaya. So that boded well for the next day. But yeah, nice to see Aleish doing the biz and making up for some of the disappointment 12 months or 14 months, whatever it was prior. Uh, he did he did take it to heart though he did have on his helmet one more lap which i thought yeah. was what, what are you going to do embrace it right you Brilliant. made him embrace it put it behind yeah. you so yeah. he at least yeah. got they and he did it he did finish with a very fantastic stand-up wheelie for those of us who actually liked that sort of thing i thought <laughs> that was pretty impressive so, yeah. <laughs> at the speed he was going at mm-hmm, yeah <laughs> I, w- I wouldn't even try that because i would be yeah that's uh, what, what makes it even harder to me is like you have wings on the front, which are dedicated to the idea of pushing it onto the front <laughs> to pushing it down. And I mean, it isn't like there wasn't any aerodynamic effect by it, but there would have been yet. He still just rode right on through with it. So maybe <laughs> he gets, maybe the hard part is just getting above the angle of attack of the wing and you then stall the wing like you would in an aircraft and it holds you up there. Yeah. yeah. It has no effect to it. Right. So who knows? But it is, it is and was interesting. So we come back on Sunday again. It is cloudy. Did did you notice how they seem to talk all the time about how it was cloudy? That was like an overriding theme. It's cloudy. I guess it's I guess it's sunny Spain on the Mediterranean coast. But they just sort of pounded it. It was still hot. <laughs> it's just seemed to be like that's cloudy. It's cloudy today. Cloudy, cloudy, cloudy. All the, cloudy. All the talk going into the weekend, Jim, was it was going to be torrential rain. 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 Uh, and it never really kind of came no. about, did it? If anything, no. probably the conditions were better, being a little bit cooler for a lot of the bikes. Not all of them, but yeah, it was not quite the downpour that we were <laughs> led to believe. But 
Yeah, never believe a weather forecast. No, do not. Yeah. Uh, it's like I, I know here, I think here in the US, they have some weird thing that they do. Like if they say that there is a 60% chance of rain, it means that like in the area that they predicted, it will be 60% chance. It has nothing to do with mm. being straight up. Hey, on this day, there's a 60% chance of rain falling. No, it, it's like you got to multiply it by some other factor of this area. It's weird. Anyway. I'm the not a meteorologist, but the, the only thing that's certain about a forecast is that it's wrong. It's just how yeah, wrong yeah. it is. <laughs> so let's get back to the racing on Sunday. We'll start with the Moto Three race. Uh, interestingly, Helgarda, who has shown good form, did not did have problem of being in Q1 for Moto Three. He, of course, got through when they take the top four. It wasn't that bad of a deal. But in the final qualifying session for Moto Three, it this, this long straightaway at Barcelona, you know that it's very important that to have that toe all the way down that front straightaway when you're starting the last lap that you're going to get in qualifying. A lot of people seem to get it timed just right because everybody was turning a red sector uh, with no time on the clock, but it would work out to be that Ortola would have the pole position. Anchi would be second. Kelso with a fantastic third. Then Masia, Bertolini, and uh, Suzuki. Or Sasaki. Sasaki or Suzuki? Which I Sasaki, forget. I think. Sasaki. Um, so that was how they would get, that's how they would start here. Now, unfortunately, Colin Weyer had a chance to be like the first Dutchman to have back-to-back poles, but he did crash in the qualifying session, which also broke his foot. In the crash. Yeah. I did, we didn't see the crash. I didn't see the crash. Maybe somebody's seen it somewhere. I have not seen anything about the crash, but it looked like you don't know how he did it, but apparently he did break his foot because he was then declared unfit for the uh, race on that Sunday morning. So unfortunately we didn't have Colin Vire to see what he could do in this race. The, the crash was, was actually shown. Was it Jim, shown? I it don't was, remember seeing it, but then again, I, I was, was going to say it's the kind of crash you don't see anymore, particularly MotoGP or <laughs> we'll come to that. But um, yeah, with these little skinny tires that the Moto Three bikes have, it doesn't take much for them, despite the fact that they're quite relatively underpowered. But is it the da- little downhill left hand turn five? Yeah, that mm-hmm. nadri little turn. Yeah, he just lit it up, and yeah, it did Ooh. spit him up pretty okay. high, and it did come down hard. So huh. um, he did go out again. Actually, he tried to turn a lap, but obviously at that mm-hmm. point, I didn't know what the injury was. So yeah, as you say, broken foot, which ruled him out. Yeah, that's unfortunate. I did not see a replay of it. Because so. he'd been like really quick on the Friday. So yes, he was making yes. good on all the promise that we've seen. So he'll he'll be back. Yeah, you know, no he'll kids. be fine. It's not a problem. Ah, uh, at the start, Anchu got a great hole shot, followed by Ortolo and Kelso, then Masia, Bertolini, and Rueda. Now Hogardo would wind up being 15th at that start. Masia, Anchu, and Kelso would have a great little tussle at the front. And bit players would show up here and there. Like Alonzo would race to the front. He'd have a lap. Then sort of Masia would go back in front. And then Alonzo would run in front again. Anchu was now starting to run sort of in that three, four, five part of the group, which I thought was interesting because most of what Anchu has done in the last couple of races, especially the races that he's won, he's laid back and timed it to perfection at the very end. And I'm thinking, well, maybe Alonzo or Anchu is just going to ride around, follow Alonzo, follow Ortola just keep himself in that top kind of three, four places and ride this one out and snag a victory here again. But Horgado had some different thoughts because he went, he was made his way from 15th to like fifth. He actually went to the front for a little bit as well. So 
again, we know in Moto3, long straightaway, it really doesn't quite matter where you start on the grid. It just helps to be in the front train. But then at one point, I think they said they had all they had 23 bikes that were covered by a second or a little bit more than a second. It was just it was a, it was a huge group of 23 at the front of this thing. And Basically course, the entire field. <laughs> yeah. Now, I was impressed because I have been on this soapbox many a time about the Moto3 guys whipping it into the pit entry, the pit lane exit area and crossing over the that area of the triangle painted area there and i've been on about that that i don't like it i hate it i i just think it's a recipe for disaster they all have behaved themselves quite well i think they may have made it that you're not allowed to cross the yellow because it was a very bright section of yellow paint that nobody was touching and we know from previous races that everybody has gone there so i don't know officially if there was a hey you can't cross this but they seem to definitely be paying attention to more of staying inside the track now there were some that were kind of floating out there here and there but sometimes you have to go with that because the draft will pull you along and do things that you just do not understand that will happen on a motorcycle i know like the first time i was at road america and i'm heading into turn one i'm getting towed by two guys i went to i knew the draft would have an effect of my braking power so i said i'm going to break earlier and even then, it felt like I had no brakes in the motorcycle whatsoever because I was being pulled along inside of that vacuum. Uh, so I can understand that sometimes you just got to go there. But all in all, I thought the guys did a really good job of staying out of that pit entry lane. And they were all racing, racing for it. Anchi would back would bounce back to the front. Mossy would take a turn at the front. Mossy did a lot of a lot of donkey work out front. Mossy and that Honda was pretty quick because there isn't any like stop start point to this track. It's very much a flow track with a long straightaway. Plus, you get those three corners in succession that are all right-handed, just right, right, right again, and you're building speed the whole way. So the Hondas all seem to be, well, at least Masia's Hondas seem to be working quite well in all of this. Rureta was up front too, and uh, Ortola, by a little over halfway, had started to fall backwards. At one point, he was 11, and then he just sort of kept on falling. And it was pretty dread, pretty um what's the word i'm looking for stunning that ortola who was on pole would fall backwards like he was now there was rueda got a track limits warning and uh somewhere along the way with about five to go horgado onto munoz who had raced his way to the front show up and masi is there and now this becomes a i want to call it a free-for-all rich because it was pass you pass back pass me i'll pass you I think at one point we saw Alonzo go from like fifth to first into the first turn effect of a tailwind that was pushing everybody down the front straightaway because it blew pretty hard all race day there. Mm -hmm. But that was the the chaos that was the first couple of turns was nothing compared to the chaos that we were going to see on the last lap of this race. It was quite amazing as they went to it on the last lap. Horgardo was leading Alonso, Masia, Anshu, and Munoz. Then Masia was went to the front around Alonso, around Munoz. Horgardo was back to fourth or fifth. Then Anshu went full send at turn 10. Anshu went up the inside, threw it in there. And so as they all came out of that, Munoz led, but we had lost Horgardo. Elgardo had fallen at 10, which we was kind of the original picture. We was out of our realm of vision on it, but he had, but he had fallen. It was, 
later determined it was his own crash. He simply was in deep. The back was light. He let the back end come around on him, and he winds up low-siding it there. Meanwhile, Alonzo had gotten past Masia, and they were they were flying at each other, getting ready to go to the last turn. So Alonzo decides to go up the inside, which causes a chain reaction that puts Munoz outside. But then here comes Anchu full chat, and the two of them converge into each other. It knocks Munoz off. And so originally, as they finished, Anchu would be third. So Alonzo would win wins the race in a crazy last lap. Masia would be second. Then Anchu was actually third. But I'm like, you know that somebody's going to have to ruin this party because someone's going to not like this, this incident. And sure enough, the stewards came back saying that he deserved a double long lap penalty, which he could not serve because this happened on the very last lap. So they gave, the equi- they gave him the equivalent time penalty to going through the long lap of inconvenience twice, which gave him a six-second penalty, yeah. which dropped him down the way. So we'll finish off where everybody is and then we'll we'll dissect this accident and talk about the penalties and everything else. So Alonzo wins the race. It's his second win. So I, the Colombian is on song looking very good. Masi is second on the podium. Then is Rueda. Then it's Sasaki, Nepa, Rossi, Toba, Suzuki, Yamanaka, Ortola, Bertelli, and Anchu finishes 12th because of the six seconds that they add to his time. Now, my thought on this with Anchu is that penalty did not fit the crime that was that Anchu committed. I contest that that is pure racing incident. Munoz got pushed out there. Anchu's on the gas, and then on a Moto 3 bike, you have to commit to the line of that corner. Anchu's on a trajectory that he really almost can't control because he's flat chat through that corner. He's also hanging off the left side of the bike. So he can't see over the bike. The person who's coming at him from his left is Munoz, who can see or should be able to see, feel, or hear that something is going to be there. Or in the very least, he should be he should be under the knowledge that somebody's going to be underneath of him there, or at least attempting to. But he wanted to try to get back to the draft and save what he could and perhaps maybe finish third. That's where his mind is. The two of them, again, like I said, it's a converging two lines and essentially, boom, they go together. And unfortunately, Munoz goes down. Now, looking back, I kind of think about it. Eh, it was a bit ambitious by, by Anchu. But then again, the door is open, so why wouldn't you go for it? But if they gave him a single long left penalty and only gave him a three-second penalty, I would have been more happy with that. Rich, you got thoughts because I can tell how you're. I can see how you're looking there. He's got that smile, folks, which means Rich has got something to say. Oh well, I'm not going to go off <laughs> for minutes and minutes bitching and moaning about this, but I just thought that was the most one of the most ridiculous decisions I've ever, ever witnessed in my entire life. Because, I mean, you summed it up, Jim. There's a little melee in that front three, which pushes mm-hmm. uh, David Munoz you might say not particularly through his own fault, but that's besides the point. You know, they, they have a little tussle. Munoz goes wide. Okay, he's cutting back to the line because it's the last corner on the last lap. Meanwhile, Onchu 
let's say hanging off the right side of the bike so somewhat unsighted as to what's going on behind and i mean it looked like he had like the turbo press didn't it or the nitrous oxide because he came through that turn so flipping fast but i suppose that was partly because the guys had kind of tangled with each other so it slowed them up so he was coming in at a rate of knots but he was on his line at racing speed where the others had tussled and yeah i mean he and munoff collided but quite why that was judged to have been onchu's fault is absolutely beyond me i mean it was 100 percent a racing incident tough on munoff yes but i just don't understand why that was onchu's fault i mean he was simply going through on his race and i don't think he did anything wrong and he should have been third i completely agree that. I... that's all i got to say on the matter I, I I will add one more thing to this. If this had happened at, say, Argentina, or let's say it happened at maybe um, Coda, or let's say it maybe happened at Mugello through you know one of the turns there, like the last turn at Mugello, I think there would have been no penalty and it would have been called racing incident. I think this had the ire of the stewards because there's very little gravel trap at a high rate of speed and an immovable object, i.e. the fence, there. I think that just because of the track, the layout of the track, and the and there being the proximity of an immovable object caused the stewards to want to throw the book at Anchu for his indiscretion. Personal opinion. Because I think if it, this same thing would have happened in Austria, they would have been doing the same thing. But again, we get into that whole thing of there's precedent of what they're trying to do. And I understand where they are, but we can't nanny state this because I'm I'm telling you, I did it of my own free will. I got on a bike and raced as hard as I could. These guys get on a bike and race as hard as they could. Uh, you know, that's what they do. It's, it's just the makeup, right? They know that inherent risk that they're willing to take to do it. And for the benefit of our entertainment, right? I mean, you could go back to the nights of old and jousts and night tournaments and the crowds roaring for their approval. It's the same thing, right? We just are sitting in the same Roman Coliseums. Just they happen to be all over the world and happen to be motorcycles there. So if it's anywhere else other than here or Austria, I don't think that I don't think it gets a penalty or it only gets a three second penalty. My take. I mean, I just think we've arrived at a point where if two riders come together and one goes down, somebody has to get a penalty. It's not a question of whether it's a racing incident anymore. It's like somebody has to pay a price for that. So I, mean, I, I if you take this to its logical extension, what is Onchu supposed to do in that situation? Is In fourth place, going into the last turn, is he to hold back just in case something happens in front of him? In which case, he won't finish on the podium. And so why is he even there? I mean, he's there to win. So I don't know. I, it's just, I know we keep going on, and I'm sure the listeners get utterly sick of it. But And I'm sure most of the listeners, or many of the listeners, think exactly as we do, that this is just ridiculous, really. Um, it was hard on Munoz, but, you know, he dished out some pretty tough moves during the course of that race himself. I mean, this is not a young lad who is famous for his politeness on a racetrack. So, you know, what goes around comes around, and he was just in the wrong position at the wrong time, you know, and it's just, that's racing. So to give Onchu any sort of a penalty was 
I think, a bit tough. And to give him a double long lap, lap penalty equivalent of, what was it, six seconds was just yeah, six seconds. Bon- utterly bonkers. So, yeah, I, I'm really, really disappointed by that. And yes, I am a bit of a Donis- Dennis Onchi fan. I hold my hands up. I've got no reason to be. I mean, I've been to Turkey once. Nice country. I don't have a Turkish wife. <laughs> you know, no, Nothing about Turkey is anything to do with me. I just like his attitude and I like the way he goes about doing what he does and David Munoz for that matter. And I suspect probably Munoz thought that was a pretty tough penalty on, on Onchu as well. So, I mean, I'm pleased for uh, Rueda. He had a great race to get into, you know, and ultimately he finished third as a result of that. But yeah, no, that was that was not correct for me. All right, we'll leave that as the final word on that incident, and we'll look at the championship standings here in Moto3. Helgardo now has a thir- only a 13-point lead over Sasaki, who was sort of absent all weekend, to be honest. He wasn't really anywhere. You know, yeah. Sasaki's name was not really mentioned anywhere. Uh, so I, he is, uh, Helgardo, that is, is a further 32 points ahead of Juan Masia. Anchu is fourth in the title fight, followed by Ortola. Alonso, Moreira, Rueda, Nepa, and Artigas. It is Hargardo's to lose, although Sasaki is going to make this interesting. I do not think Masa, I think the fight for third and fourth between Anju and Masia will be interesting to watch, but I don't think those guys have what it takes to run with Hargardo and Sasaki for the championship. Stranger things have happened. There's a lot to go here, but that's a. Well, I don't know, Jim. I mean, 20. 20 points covering the top four with a lot of seasons still to go. I mean, a whole Gardo starting to have a couple of these off weekends. I mean, Asen. So did a kid disappeared. Costa. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah. I mean, it's a wobble, mid-season wobble. Not the first person to have it. But, yeah. you know, there's a couple. The thing is that Sasaki Masia and Onchu, by comparison to Holgado, who is a stellar talent, let's be clear. But those three guys have a lot of experience. They've been through this championship a lot of times. So they'll dig in for this very, very hard run through to the end of the season now. I mean, this is like a super, super series of races coming up now. So 20 points. Yeah, I I still think it's anybody's, despite Holgado's great year so far. But, you know, these little issues like falling off on the last lap, they bound to niggle away at the back of his brain a little bit. Yeah, and lucky for him, really, that you know Onchu. I mean, Masia was second, so he's caught up a fair bit. Sasaki, as you say, Jim was kind of a little bit kind of absent all weekend, but still finished fourth. I mean, that was a great result, all things considered. And Onchu, well, very, very unlucky to be penalised by the idiots in race control because that was just most one of the most egregious things ever. Uh, but enough of that. But although I'm going to be on a rant again later on because there's another one coming. But anyway, Moto2, I suppose, is where we're headed to next. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, well, we shall move to the Moto2. So Moto2, um, still cloudy, you know, windy. <laughs> we always got to be, we were very, very curious about how they kept talking about that, but they were there. If we look at it from a standpoint of what was going on here, um, we had Dixon who would start, in the pole position, followed by Agura. Now, that was great of Dixon because in free the last free practice, he put four tenths on everybody. So that was a stellar feat of speed that he had, but he was able to take it and carry it forward into pole, which was great to see from Jake. Then you had Agura, but 
you had this kid called Alonzo, or not Alonzo, sorry, Acosta, who had a great lap going in qualifying. And he goes through seven, a little wide, which takes you to the, which is the left-hander, which takes you to the right-hander of eight, which everybody's always on the curbs in that corner anyway. He misses it by, oh, I don't know what, a millimeter, if not less, to which he was, I won't say Acosta was headed for pole position, but I will say Acosta was guaranteed to be on the front row. If not the front, he was definitely going to be heading up the second row because it was a stellar lap that Acosta was putting in when he couldn't really make anything work. But of course, he gets zapped that lap because, oh yeah, you ran over the curbs and touched the micro amount of green that happens to be there. And to me, this one hurts only because if that was grass that was there, because we always talk about how look, we put grass there to be okay. If he had been there on with grass, it wouldn't have slowed that bike down one iota. He had so much rubber left over on the curb that it wasn't going to change what was going to happen in that lap. So if we decide that we're going to make these changes, if you will, and say, well, the limit's the limit, and because we don't want to derive anybody getting any more out of it, and the whole argument, well, if it was grass there, then he would have suffered his own penalty. He wouldn't have because there was enough meat of the tires still on the road to keep him driving forward. But anyway, I'll leave that. I'll leave that there. So that lap gets nullified. <laughs> so that meant that it was Gonzalez, Areno, uh, and Alonso all then filling in the parts as you as you slipped uh, Acosta down to I think he started ninth on the grid or somewhere thereabouts for the Moto Two race. Do you want to have a go at track limits there, Richard? Do you want to save it? We've been there many We've times. Been of course. Yeah. <laughs> I figured I'd let you at least have a try at that one. When this race starts, I think this race really winds up like in three distinct parts. There's like three distinct races, I think, actually happen in this one. Uh, the first part of the race is like Dixon gets out in front of Gonzalez with Agura and Kinnett. And you're, that front race there is you're trying to figure out who's going to do anything. Gonzalez was doing so much work to get around Dixon, which he eventually finally does. And Agura was kind of keeping pace. But Kinnett then sort of rode up to the front of the race. And it was Dixon kind of fell back into that third fourth fifth part and you sort of had gonzalez kind of doing the race and leading there but along the way mr acosta had gotten himself free of the chasing pack and cue the jaws music because he just started running everybody down he wasn't doing it at a great clip but it was a tenth here a tenth there and there's plenty of time and we're all worried about rear grip here at catalonia anyway especially with the moto two bikes as they like to back them in and they do spin them up coming out because they've got that nice power curve off of the Triumph. And so as we get to it, we have Acosta getting by with about 12 laps to go. And he does put the move on at turn one. Acosta was getting great drive out of the last turn. Was able to take advantage of the braking stability that he has built into his Calyx and his trust in the front. And basically we wound up with Acosta being at the front of the pack. And in fact, Acosta would start to slightly pull away from everybody else. And you sort of thought, I did. I thought, well, this one's in the book. Just let's knock this one up. And oh, by the way, since Arbolino couldn't get out of first qualifying session in, in the on Saturday, he was running like up at 11th, but had fallen his way back to 17th. And Arbolino was not going to, going to have any points whatsoever. So 
wow, you're thinking Acosta has got the dagger out. And he's getting ready to stab Arbelino right in the heart, and this championship is going to get wa- broke wide open. But there was a certain Brit who had a different idea of what to do about this. Now, Dixon starts to now come on here in the last part of this race. He kind of moves up from his third, his fourth, fifth spot to, to third, and he kind of dispenses with a girl, and he kind of gets on by Gonzalez, and then he slides up to get to near Acosta. Now, Acosta was starting to get into tire trouble because it was evident that pegs were feet were leaving pegs on the exit of several of the the uh, what is the the over the brow turn was 14 is the last one so 13 like 12 I think it is over the brow Acosta was like losing yeah. a peg here he was losing he was losing his foot other places like Ugh, this doesn't look good because now Dixon was doing the tenth here tenth there tenth here tenth there kind of a thing to which he winds up. He winds up running down with Canet. They runs down Acosta. Acosta then just hit the cliff with his tire. He also had a track limits warning. And I think Acosta was like, you know, again, that was one of those ones that was marginal at best for track limits. But, okay, you get three calls in a race to get it. And he, Acosta seems to be one of these kids who rides it right to that ragged edge because it seems like almost every weekend when there's high-speed directional changes, he's always at or near or getting a track limits warning i think he knew that arbolino was way back in the pack so i think acosta decided to pack it in at this point and was just going to be willing to ride it home whenever wherever he was going to finish he was just going to ride it home he, he was guaranteed to be sort of in that top top six which was going to be good points so he kind of packed it in but then canet came to play with this as well he gets sort of back by dixon they're having a great pack and forth the Reynas had rode his way to the front. Now, Reynas had a strong qualifying session, had a strong weekend going, but he looked even more impressive than Acosta did on the IO squad. And you know, there with five or so laps to go, you kind of thought Reynas was the best chance for IO to take a win in this one. But that wouldn't pan out as Dixon basically carved out a lead and he wound up, well, because on the last lap, he, he can't tried to go by Jake. At turn one, it didn't happen. He tried again at 10, but that didn't work. And it was, it was, he was so close to losing it that he basically had to let Dixon go ahead and win. So Dixon beats Cannon. Arenas gets his first podium in the class of Moto 2. Garcia has a great ride to be third. Then it was Gonzalez. Acosta slid to six. Gonzalez and Acosta slides to sixth. Then it was Agura, Lopez, Lowe's, and Celestino Vietti rounding out the top 10. And that was a great Moto2 race. There was a lot of passing back and forth among the top guys. Tire wear played a great effect in this race the whole way through. Dunlap tires were great, don't get me wrong. It's an abrasive surface, very abrasive surface, and we always seem to have tire trouble there uh, with rears and stuff. Uh, but I thought this was one of the best Moto2 races I've seen probably since the beginning, first couple of years when this thing was a serious axe murder class, as Jim Race liked to say. What did you think, Rich? I know you had to be stoked that Jake won another one. Well, yes, I mean, without wishing to be too sort of partisan about it, obviously delighted to see Dixon not just winning the race, but the manner in which he went about controlling his race and ultimately prevailing. I mean, I think that was really the takeaway for me. But also kind of interesting, it kind of shone a light, I think, perhaps on something that we don't necessarily talk about very much in any of the classes, and certainly not Moto2, which is probably to do with bike setup. 
because we know Barcelona is a very abrasive track. So, and also the the last kind of 10, five laps or whatever is crucial in terms of tyre life, particularly rear. So Dixon started from pole, led the early laps and then kind of dropped back to fourth in that middle part of the race. Whereas by contrast, let's say Acosta, who had started, what was he, seventh or eighth or something, I think, Jim? He started ninth, I think. Okay, so he sort of came forward, but he didn't have to make up any great big gaps. It's not like he was having to sort of bridge a five-second gap at any point in that race. But he so he kind of gradually came to the front, and then suddenly his tyre, quite evidently, as you said, because his feet were coming off the pegs and he was clearly spinning up, he kind of lost his rear tyre, whereas at that almost at that exact moment, Dixon decided to push forward again and clearly had the tyre. So there's something about managing the race and managing the tyre in there, which is, for a scientific engineering brain, much bigger than mine. But I think we could conclude that that was kind of the deal that happened. And whether that was Dixon's and Aspar's team's game plan, we don't know. But certainly he rode a excellent race jake dixon did i mean i i have to feel very sorry for aaron connect coming second again not to say i didn't want jake to win because i absolutely did but i would have loved to see aaron connect win a race and i'm sure he will at some stage in moto too but you know you have to feel sorry for him getting the runner-up spot again so that was my main takeaway and also interesting i suppose my final point really just as a general thing is interesting that albert arenas has his best weekend in Moto2 after being dropped by the IO team. Is that the pressure release thing going on or is it just right, I'm in the shop window? Probably a bit of both, but it's probably more just, you know, he knows he's not in that team anymore. Or that's what we were led to believe from a couple of the commentators anyway, saying that he's not there next year and he turns up his best result. So just interested in the psychology of how the, all this works, really. Yeah, there's something to be said about bike setup and preserving the rear tire especially here at barcelona right i mean if it would have rained that throws it all out the window right it would have been a rain race or what race yeah. or whatever it would have been completely different and whatnot but you know it, you can to me what i think is interesting is if you if you look at how jake dixon rides and you look at how acosta rides the two ride completely different acosta is very much a more of a pointy need the weight on the front end kind of a thing, which then tends to make you sort of spin up a little bit in the back. You use more of the rear to propel yourself forward because you don't have that weight transfer. If it is transferring, it's it's going later, right? It takes a while for that momentum change to move the weight to go back to the rear. Jake is not, and it costs has always sort of got the back end sort of light and it's sort of wiggly and, and whatnot. Jake seems to have it more planted. He, I think he'd do really good on the, uh, moto gp bike because of the michelin being really grippy on the rear and we don't see that back end wiggling around in space so much and dixon sort of straight lines it right into the corner and if you do that you're putting more even wear on both tires you're not you're not having to wait for that weight transfer either way but it does make it a little not as quick to turn or react to what you're doing which costa seems to like a nervous bike that way which are things that we tend to not think about in, in motor two because everybody's sort of on the same motorcycle and you know Dunlap's the single supplier and they don't have as many compounds really to choose from as what like moto gp has and everybody sort of settles towards the same tire mainly i think because dunlap recommends that tire and you know some of the guys who've been there long enough 
can kind of go off script a little bit, but most of them haven't been there that long, especially now with that size Dunlap, and they tend to just skew towards what Dunlap says to do. I think this is going to be really wild to watch next year when we go to Pirelli. I think you need to remember how all these bikes looked and reacted when they're on Dunlaps. And then when we put them on Pirelli's next year, this is going to be an even more fascinating thing to watch because the Pirelli is nothing like a Dunlap in the way they are. And the bikers are going to have to be completely set up and go a completely different direction for tire life and stuff like that. And it's going to be fascinating and fun to watch. So, uh, with that, I think we should look at the point situation coming out of the race here. Acosta leads now by 22 points over Arlino, thanks in big part to Arbolino not scoring any points. Uh, Acosta had that chance to really pound a nail in the coffin of Arbolino for the this World Championship. Um, he didn't get that opportunity, but you know it's only a 22-point lead. We've seen Acosta make mistakes. We've seen him be nervous on the front end. If he gets another race of tire trouble, I think India is a huge, I don't know what's going to happen event because we've never been there with a bike with MotoGP bikes at all. Um, that track has been sitting for a long time. I don't think there's, it's in use very much. So that's going to be a real wild card in this championship. So I'm looking forward to that round to see what happens here because it could easily be, you know, one small crash, one small tip, Arbelino finds form and it's there, but it is definitely, I think a two horse race. Although I think you would contest that Jake would have a chance only being 44 points out. But I just think that Acosta and Arbolino are just on a different level right now than, than everybody else that's chasing. Yeah. Them. No, I think Jake's too far behind now. And also, I think, and again, without wishing to get too sort of psychoanalytical about <laughs> things, but it just kind of feels like the wind's out of Arbolino's sails a little bit. You know, he's does, had a couple it? of off weekends. The, the MotoGP Grassini thing hasn't hand out whereas Acosta's in the ascendancy you know we expect him to be in MotoGP next year it just has that kind of feel about it to me Jim yeah 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 it does have that uh anyway Kaneda's fourth Lonzo's fifth uh Vietti sixth Aldegar seventh slash eighth Chancha ninth Lowe's is tenth in the championship and with that let's finish up with the final race of the day and that being the MotoGP race now this one was interesting because they were talking before the race about the front tire, not la the medium front tire, not going the distance on this race and everybody being very um, sensitive to the tire wear that's happening in the front. So it was interesting. Simon Crayford is talking to the guys from Mission. They're saying, well, you have to understand everybody went with a soft rear for the sprint race and that provided way more grip on the back, which means that the front end is now plowing. Or understeering, so they were seeing a lot more wear on the front than they normally would. But they told the guys they needed to work on their balance of their bikes, and they needed to probably run the medium medium for the race distance, which everybody was going to go to. Well, if the medium rear isn't as sticky as the soft rear, then you're not going to push the medium front as hard, are you? So it was interesting to talk about hear them talking about this balance, this understeer that was there. It was really good technical stuff from Simon, which I'm really starting to enjoy the the technical aspects that Simon is like cueing us into. I think us anorak type people who are really involved in the sport, love those little technical nuggets that are coming out that Simon's doing. So for that one, I thought it was really great. So that's how they're going to start with almost every, everybody on the entire grid was running medium front, medium rear. We take off again. We got the same lineup in there. If you hear my dog, I'm sorry. 
Um, apologize for that. But we start off. Benyaya <laughs> has the whole shot that is just absolutely wicked. Oh, and did you also hear how uh, I think it might have been on Saturday. Simon was saying that he says not only do we have an aerodynamic war, we have a clutch war going on, too, because we're talking about setting bite points and potentially using apparatus to set those bite points and everything. So I was kind of right there with that one with the KTMs and how their launches have worked now. Sort of, I think Ducati's kind of caught back up because, you know, here, at least the last couple of races, yeah. the Ducatis have been almost equal to the KTMs off the line, if not maybe just a skosh better. But we go running off into turn one, and we have a tremendous pileup of about six riders in the first turn. It happens in the mid-pack, and it's started by one Bastianini. Bastianini is way, way too deep on the inside, heading into that first turn. And he winds up bumping into... Who did he bump? He bumped... bumped, uh, Everybody, pretty much. Okay, everybody. That that (laughs) works. Everybody, yeah. He had bumped into he had bumped into it. He then wound up bumping into I think Bastianini, uh, Bastianini, who then bumped into Zarco, that bumped into to Gigi Antonio, who bumped into like Alex Marquez, who banged into Bezeki, and they all six of them go tumbling. I mean, it was Skittles, yeah. it was bonkers, it was crazy that like you know, I think they figured out somewhere that it was like eight Ducatis or something were were in this accident. <laughs> Or something, the whole Grassini team was there, Zarco, all this stuff. But what we don't see happening, because we're focused on everybody that's in the gravel trap, we miss the wild and absolutely crazy moment that Peko Benyaya has. As Benyaya comes out of two, and from the brief little onboard cameras that they showed, he simply has the gas on, and he looks like a true dirt tracker here in America just got it lit up sideways coming out of this turn. And then the inevitable happens when on a road racer, it just goes too far to which there suddenly get to be that change to the other side of the tire and it slips grips. And poor Benyaya is just flung old school 500 high side off the bike. And of course he is leading the race. Now it is chaos ensuing behind him and the man most blinded by it all was bender who was following he was running second at that time i don't even remember who was in second place there i think it might have been maybe vinyala's who then was cited by the accident was able to then avoid the fallen and spinning peko benyaya and bender's left with this moment of decision and instantaneously bender makes a great jink to his right to avoid hitting Pecco anywhere in his chest or in his upper torso area and does get his legs. He ran square over both of Pecco's legs. I feared the worst that Pecco was going to have at least a broken tibula or fibula because a 350 pound motorcycle hitting you at that speed is not going to be fun or pretty. Pecco was down. He, you knew he was conscious because he tried to get up and when he tried to get up and he couldn't get up, I really thought his leg was broken at that point. It was a very vicious high side. It was a very vicious crash. It was a crazy first corner. Have I missed anything, Rich, in this synopsis? Well, it's hard to unpick it all, really. It is. It was, yeah. A lot went on in 20 seconds, didn't it? But, yes. Well, let, Bastianini, I, I don't know, uh, very reminiscent of what happened the year before with Nakagami, who caused a very 
well, let's say similar. I mean, he went in too hot, collected several riders. If you remember that, I think he took out, well, he certainly took out Alex Rins, who had a broken wrist, I think, as a result of that last year. Yes, um, I believe so. So it's, it's the typical turn one Barcelona crash, isn't it? Somebody yeah. just goes in a bit too hot. It's just that kind of a corner, really. And if you go down or you clip somebody, you're going to take a lot of people out. So kind of that's what happened. I mean, Bastianini had a funny little look down at his dash just moments before he kind of ran out of road. I don't know if he spotted that. So I don't know if he kind of knew he was in trouble or whether there was a bike problem. I... Not sure. I mean, as as we're going to find out, Bastianini, from an injury perspective, has actually come out of this worse than Banyaya has, although they were separate incidents. So, so let's, yeah. Let's talk about that. I feared when he looked down that the whole shot device hadn't released. So the bike couldn't react the way that he wanted it to. Now, I don't know that for certain, but that was what thought I had in my head. Because you, there really wouldn't be anything on your dash you would want to look at at that point in the race. I mean, there's nothing to be gained. You, Why would you say anything on it in the first three seconds of the race anyway? So I was thinking it was more along the lines that the, the whole shot device didn't disengage like he thought it was going to, which makes it still be like a chopper, which means it would have been sort of really squiddlish to try to like stop without having the weight transfer properly to the front of the bike, which is what I think may have happened with that one. But let's talk about the injuries. Let's talk about Benyaya's injuries first, because Benyaya was treated on the scene by the medical car, by the doctors in the medical car. That's why they follow them at the start of the race to be able to do this. Um, he was taken in. They thought he may have broken a leg. They had to go do a CAT scan. He had consciousness the whole time. His whole entire upper torso was fine. There was nothing wrong there whatsoever. Um, but he did potentially have a break in his leg, which required a CAT scan because he didn't know whether it was an old injury that hadn't healed quite yet or what it was. From my understanding as of right now, that has been sussed out that he has no fracture in his leg and potentially will be allowed to ride in Mizano. Maybe not 100% fit because you got to guarantee that that's been bone, bone bruised and that is going to take some time to be able to put pressure on it. Depending on which one it is, I'm assuming it's his, uh, is it the fibia is in the front, I believe, of your, it's like your shin, right? I think it is the fibia. The tibia, I think, is in the back. I may have it backwards, guys. I don't do biology well. I'll have to ask my wife. I forgot to, but she's off doing other things today, playing in a band somewhere. But um, if that is true, your ability to push that bike left to right and use your feet like you need to sort of counter steer is going to be hard, especially at Mazzano because what? Since it's his, is it his right or his left that's injured? I don't know which one. I'm not it sure. Is. I'm not sure to be honest. I'm trying yeah. to think which way he was spinning. I'm going to guess it was his right. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Which means at least the pressure wouldn't be there when he goes through the high speed kink at Mazzano. So you still have your left to push yourself back up off that side of it. Now I do not know the extent of Bastianini's injuries because I know he was on a scooter and he rode into the medical center on the scooter. Rich, fill us in on where Bastianini's injuries are what they are well my understanding and again I, I might be a little bit off base with this but my understanding is that he's got the damage to his foot and mm -hmm. to his wrist because he was run over as well yeah the i forget bike, by uh, who because it was just it was chaos it was, wasn't it so, wasn't dg's bike that was sort of on top of him kind of possibly uh, there were lots of bikes in there but he did get kind of run over which is always you know a, a gnarly situation um 
all things considered, I mean, it's in terms of both incidents, it's been quite a big let off, really. Um, so Bastianini's kind of troubled season continues, really, because, yeah, as I say, probably physically he's in worse shape than Banyaya is, amazingly, mm-hmm. because Banyaya's was by some stretch the more spectacular looking collision. But yeah, it sounds as if he's got off relatively lightly, which is, you know, obviously very, very good news. If that had happened just 20 years ago, I'm sure Benyaya would have had broken a collarbone, maybe cracked a rib somewhere. It goes to show you how awesome the airbags inside the suits are. Being able to recognize that Benyaya is airborne and in trouble and inflate him to be the Michelin man so that that impact is at least absorbed in somewhat. One last thing I'll add to the crash was they cut to a quick scene of uh, Pecco's girlfriend and um, Tardazzi. And she's shooken up, which if you see someone that you care about deeply involved in that and from the pits where you are, it was harrowing to watch. Very scary to see. She's upset, rightly so, right? And then there's Tardazzi, you know, he's okay, he's conscious, he's, you know, he he's, everything's okay there. He's just mad, he has a broken leg and trying to, I thought it was a sweet little moment. It only just happened just for a brief second in the feed and they took it away. But it shows you that there, the, how real and raw emotion can be in racing and in sports when you have something like this that happens. And we don't see this very often because you kind of almost think that these guys are robots and the people around them are sort of robots too because it's a very structured, methodical thing. And then, you know, you get this moment of humanity, which was interesting to see. And, you know, thank goodness it's not a serious injury that he's obtained. You know, it's not a life-threatening injury of any kind whatsoever. So, Good on that. So Jim, I, I want to yes. ask you I want to ask you a question now because I'm probably a little bit more old school like you are, uh, and probably like a lot of our listeners are, and I'm kind of fascinated to know with a bit of feedback if we can get it from the listeners what their take on this is, because like you, I mean racing incidents, it's part of the sport. We don't want to see people getting hurt and seriously hurt. Of course we don't. That's not what we want. Clearly, MotoGP as a um commercial promoter and whatever of the sport wants to generate as much thrills and spills and action as it can i'm kind of interested in this and it's a real area of nuance because twitter with a few people that we often reference on this show kind of twitter or x sorry whatever we have to call it this week um lit up with people being very upset about some of the coverage. And and I will agree that I thought some of the replays, before we knew exactly what was going on, were pushing the boundaries a bit, even for me. And I'm not particularly one of those people that thinks that you should not see... I mean, cards on the table. You know, I, I like my bike racing. I've been around a long time. We've seen lots of stuff going on over the years. I, I would, I like to see what's happened. I want to analyze it and understand it. You know, I understand that there are people involved and you don't want anybody to be hurt and seriously hurt. Certainly not. But at the same time, not being allowed to see anything, I think is almost quite distressing to us as well in a way as race fans, because we follow the riders and we follow the series and stuff. So I get it's a really fine line homing in on the ambulance turning up and people kind of around the ambulance and then like the girlfriend who was distressed i think we're on a tightrope there in terms of invasion of privacy um but dawn has you know 
fighting against Formula One that likes to create drama. I mean, we don't need to create drama in MotoGP. We've got plenty of it naturally, perhaps somewhat unlike Formula One a lot of the time. So I don't know. It's a, it's a kind of an interesting, what do you do for the best? You know, mm. I think probably the TV director, and I'm not blaming Dawn. I mean, I don't know who ultimately who's in charge of what actually goes out live. I think they possibly pushed a bit too far on Sunday in terms of the constant replays before we knew quite who was okay and who wasn't, particularly with reference to Banyara, of course. I thought it was a bit distasteful, kind of focusing on on his sister, who's obviously his assistant in the pit every every race, and his girlfriend, who was obviously very upset because she didn't know how badly injured he was at that stage. So I don't know, it's, it's just an interesting facet of the sport to me in terms of how much do you show before it becomes too invasive too kind of much of an invasion whilst at the same time allowing those that want to understand what's unfolded in terms of the whole mechanics of how a crash happens and so on do you know what i mean it's, it's, yeah, it's yeah, a tricky yeah. one isn't it it's, it's a really it hard balance to to find i oh, okay wow um a lot in there so okay for me i agree I, I want replays and I want replays from every angle because I want to know were they on the gas too soon? Was the tire not warm? Did something break on the bike, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what we don't know is, is they did kind of show a replay rather quickly because we kind of knew everybody was up in the gravel trap. And then we had realized that Benyaya was down, but that coverage had not been shown because the director stayed with what happened in the gravel trap. Then we got a replay to go, whoa, that was like, wow. And then it it went away. But in that time, of all that time taking that, obviously the medical car was there and they were with Ben Yaya very quickly. Now, I would guarantee you that Dorn has got to be listening to the medical feed about what they need back and forth. So I think they would have known at least that Ben Yaya was conscious and that if he had injuries, it would not believe to be life-threatening. So maybe then they can go there okay in the clear to show us replays of that accident then again. Um, chasing the ambulance up the track into the medical center and whatnot, I thought got to be a bit much. Like I, like, I don't need to know that the ambulance is there. I know that the ambulance is going there. You've told us that. I thought that was a bit of... Um, we, we call it um, ambulance chasing here in the States, you know? Um, mm. So, yeah. <laughs> so I thought that was a bit much. Um, it's, that's an interesting take on the privacy part of, of what you said in there. I'm not a hundred percent sure that I know what's right or wrong there. Um, no, neither, you, neither do you, I. I mean, it's a fine, very, very fine line. Yeah. I, what, I what's thought, informative and what's voyeuristic is a, is a really difficult yeah balance to strike i mean to, to, to me i didn't think they were out of line with peko's girlfriend because it was a few seconds and it to me it showed the family that a team is and the concern that everybody had it wasn't like she was left to wonder what was going on no tradazzi was there talking with her and trying to calm her down but I, I, but and I, I, that's just what I thought instantly until you say this to me. Now I'm going and rethinking my thought, going, maybe that is a bit of the line too far. But I, I would have to suspect that you 
are willingly dating him, you know he is a star of a world championship event, you are going to be looked at in a different microscope than anyone else. Which is why some, you know, some people, they prefer to stay in the, in the, the, the motorhomes behind the garage or deep in the garage or something like that. Um, I guess you kind of, I mean, that's, I mean, I don't know where you draw that line because you could show people in the stands having a reaction to something that happened that's very bad on it. And you could show that again, is that invasion of the privacy of the people in the stands? I don't know. I, mm. I have a ticket and I gave up all my rights to my images and everything else on that ticket by entering. So I, I don't know. I really don't. But I would love to know what everybody else well, thinks. Right, I'm genuinely motopod, interested to know what people think. I am too. I, this is really yeah, interesting because I never thought of it from this perspective. So, yeah, write us motopod motopodcast.com. Let us know. I is it too far? Are we pushing a boundary here? I don't know. So, well, I mean, there's obviously there's, there's a lot of cameras everywhere these days. Mm-hmm. So, it's it's kind of the thing. And I'm going to have a little bit of a dig at Formula One, I suppose. It's the kind of thing that I suspect in Formula One, if they had an accident, okay, it's different with cars, but take my point where there was jeopardy and people that were distressed that were close to say the driver i suspect they wouldn't show it i don't think they would show it live now but certainly if the driver was okay it would certainly make its way into drive to survive as part of the amping up the tension and the drama thing Mm -hmm. whereas dorna or whoever was in control of the pictures on sunday took the decision to throw it out live which is you know quite risky because you don't know i mean think about say I'm going way off to people that are even older than I am now, but you know, Ronnie Peterson at Monza. Yeah. Senate, um, Senate you know, at uh, Imola. Well, well, the thing with Peterson was that he was involved in a big crash at Monza in oh, what, 78, 79, I guess it would have been before bit before my time, but he was quite badly injured in that accident, but he actually died as a result or on the operating table because he had a blood clot that, mm. that formed. I think that's correct. So yeah, he kind of died right. as a result of the crash, but not directly because of the crash, if you know what I mean. Uh-huh. Fine yeah. line. And, you know, when you get a leg injury, if it's a bad one or any injury, you don't know what's going to happen if you have to go in under the surgeon's knife. Now, happily, Banyai didn't. I think it's just kind of like really severe bruising, as you said, Jim. But So you don't never quite know how these things are going to turn out to, you know, one, two, three, four, five days later on. So it's a, it's a tricky line to tread. That's the point that I'm making. And I'm not criticising them for what they showed because... For me, it was okay, but I'm a bit older. I can take it, and I kind of like you. I want to see and understand what happened. But as I say, X was lighting up with a number of well-known voices, some of whom we've spoken to on this show, who were very, very upset about the coverage, and to a degree that I think was possibly a bit for me over the top. But then, as I say, I'm perhaps my sensibilities are a bit different to other people's, and that's fine. I mean, we're all different, but. Yeah, just interested to know what people think. Hmm. Uh, interesting, con- interesting question yeah. there. Very, uh, like I said, I, I, hmm, I, well, I'll have to think about that some more. Paul, let's go back to the race. Um, yeah, there's a race, the whole race to get through. Yeah, the main, the luckiest <laughs> person on the planet was Alage because he barely missed being part of the the Skittles effect uh, in turn one. He was the last guy to get through. Yeah, millimeters between by the front a whisker. To- yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So definitely he was there. So uh, the other part, and this is the one that I'd like to hear people's th- thought about, was the you have five minutes to get back. 
with your motorcycle to the pits to be able to make the restart. So everyone was trying very hard to restart their bikes, to get around the track, to get to that spot. Several corner workers were falling when bikes started and stuff like that, which nothing happened to them. But again, their volunteer, you could easily have one bike into the other because one Zarko was trying to start. He turned around into the path of somebody else. The cleanup was chaos as well. So I'm wondering if everybody is all still for this five minute rule to get back or not. Let us know. I am not. I would prefer something along the lines of if the rider himself, because we have two bikes in MotoGP, if the rider himself can get himself back within five minutes or 10 minutes, those guys could have left those bikes. They could have ran back up the pit lane and got back in. And that, that would be fine. And for me and my own personal take on it is it takes a little bit for the adrenaline to wear off. You may not know you're actually hurting that bad when because of the adrenaline. Uh, I myself experienced that. I was hurt pretty bad one time. Um, I had no clue that I was just because my adrenaline was going. And it was only about seven or eight minutes after the accident happened that I realized that, man, I my arm really hurts. So... I mean, Martin Brundle, if you've ever read his book, Working the Wheel, he talks about a crash that he had, that he had a concussion to where he goes to leave the pits. And before he does, he says, do we turn right or left out of the box? Because he didn't know where he was. And so all adrenaline, you know, he ran all the way back up the pit lane. I think it might have been Barcelona, too, to be honest with you. But I don't remember that. But, you know, to me, I think it was Adelaide. Was it Adelaide? Yeah, Adelaide. Sorry, it was Adelaide. Mel Mel Melbourne. He had that Melbourne, monster Adelaide. crash. Whichever. Hey, but it's one of the, that's you know, oh, oh, doesn't matter. Does not matter. The, the, team, the team owner it. said to him, Martin, are you sure you're okay to drive? He says, Yeah, 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 yeah. Which track am I at? That's it, yeah. Something <laughs> that, that yeah. story. It's yeah. a great story, right? I mean, it's true, but that's what adrenaline can do to you. So to me, I'm a little weary of this five minutes to get back thing. Um again, I don't like the one bike rule in Moto two or Moto three. I understand where they're coming from with it, but I think you should be allowed to have one sitting in the garage. You can't use it. And that's what Moto America has done. They've gone to the idea you can have one there built up. And then you can then, if your bike is completely damaged, you then take that bike to tech, that bike gets tech, and then you use the other bike. I think they should do the same thing with Moto3 and Moto3 Moto and Moto2. But I'm but I'm worried that we're going to get people, your mind just doesn't work right sometimes after a crash. There's adrenaline, concussions are a real thing. You You're not going to realize that, you hurt and um i'm afraid we're gonna get people more hurt uh, if we got a you know a silly rule of saying you got to get back in five minutes you know so anyway uh continuing onward because we're never gonna get this done unless we start with it basically <laughs> the race restarts vinales takes off and he's out front uh followed by martin and his teammate Aleish and Oliveira, then zarco and bender uh bender has to be go onto a hard front because he has no more mediums eventually did bender did Bender crash or just retire the bike? I can't remember because as soon as he, he had a bike failure, he had a bike failure. I think, yeah, the front wasn't working. He couldn't make the front work with the heart or whatever. And he immediately went to go see Pecco uh, after that, which shows you the kind of character that, you know, Brad Bender has. I mean, that was absolutely uh, top notch, you know, great bloke kind of stuff there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. But th this race plays out to where it's basically, it's, it's a Lace versus Vinales. It's like, which, which Aprilia is going to win because, have you know eight Ducatis are missing from the field there was nobody who was really going to want to run with them um you know except for maybe the the Pramac boys who could potentially do it 
Uh, but they really, they really didn't do that well. But Aleish would win in Barcelona. Stones throw from the track. Home, the hometown, hometown boy of it all wins his race that he's won, that he's dreamt about. Great to see. Vinales was trying to be the first guy in the modern four-stroke era to win on three different bikes, which would have been interesting. Gary would have been apoplectic. Uh, shout out, Gary. And then uh, Martin would race to the podium, beating Oliveira as Oliveira's bike, uh, you know, it just didn't quite have the oomph there at the end. I don't know if Oliveira just couldn't get the tires to work or last, but Oliveira did have a fourth, which was a great uh, spot for him. I said, actually, to be honest with you, he did get overtaken by Zarco on the last lap. So Oliveira felt the fifth, which yeah, is still a great finish yeah. for the team. And then you had Alex Marquez, Quattro in seventh, then Miller, Augusto Fernandez, DG Antonio. Um, I think 11th was Mark Marquez, who was had some very crazy arrow on the bike that Honda's obviously trying to, to add to it. So they're working on that part of it. Uneventful after we got through the massive craziness of the first turn. Um, I thought it was great to see a lace win. You thoughts, Rich? Yeah, uh, no, it was absolutely. And backing up what he did on Saturday, really, I know it was the sprint, but um, well-deserved. And battling through both Aprilia's, as we saw on the super slow-mo, some pretty second-hand-looking front tyres Yes. by the time they were into the last few laps of the race. So, yeah, no, good job. I mean, it must be said that Binder was one of them. I think he had a mechanical failure, but a number of riders, I think Mar- Marquez and certainly Marco Bezzecchi, compromised by the fact that they had to start on tyres that they didn't want to ride on, but they didn't have any of their first choice tyres left because they'd used up their allocation through the weekend and because bikes were wrecked in those first lap incidents, they couldn't, they had to go out on either soft or hard iterations of the tyre. So with that in mind, I suppose, Bezaki, where did he finish? Top 10th, 11th, I think. It's a bit of a disaster, really. Um, It was in the top 10, I know that, but he had to ride on soft front. He didn't have the tyre he wanted. Massively compromised. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was a little bit after all the, well, excitement, inverted commas, it's not really the right word of the first lap on the original start. Yeah, it was a an interesting race, but perhaps it got a bit spread out, one thing and another. I, I just have to go off on a very short rant, I did promise, because Bastianini was given a long lap, or possibly even a double long lap penalty for causing the first uh, corner crash. And I'm thinking, well... Nakagami did the same thing last year, effectively. Okay, he didn't take out five or six bikes, but he did take out three, and one of whom was had a broken wrist. And he didn't get a penalty at all last year. So I'm thinking, yeah, there yeah. we go with the consistency again. Anyway, yeah. I, I won't go on any more than no, that. But yeah, no just, just you know, really bizarre kind of. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's almost. Kind of... It's almost like they, at least in Moto Two, they want to keep giving Acosta long laps just because they trying to keep this championship close almost it, it really like if i was a cost i'd be thinking it but i i don't think anything really bothers that kid to be honest with you i think he's he's there to there to you know race motorcycles win races and that's pretty much it but yeah you, it, the the consistency about how the stewards decide things is becoming laughable now at this point let's uh look at well, it's the... been all over the place for a long time hasn't yeah. it but they really do need to get a grip of this one because it it, it puts people the, the problem is is it will put people off because you don't really ever quite know what's what 
uh, and for us, okay, we can sort of take it on the chin, although obviously we moan about it massively, I do. But for the casual viewer, it must be terribly confusing, really, and that's not how you grow the sport up. So I hope, in the fullness of time, that strong heads prevail on this one. And, you know, let them race, and, okay, crashes will happen. You know, as we've said often, and I constantly gone about if it's ridiculously i mean i don't think what bastianini did on sunday was reckless he just kind of for whatever reason maybe his whole shot device i mean he's been given a penalty we don't even know if it was a whole shot device i mean if it was i mean raul fernandez pulled out in the race because his whole shot device was locked in place so who's to say in which case he shouldn't get a penalty at all they should change the rules around whole shot devices perhaps that might be a better solution i guess to go back to normal suspension which is more predictable I don't know, but but my point is that, you know, these quick judgments on things are either the wrong decision or they don't take full account of everything that should be taken into account. And so we don't know with Bastianini, but even saying that, it, it, it was a tiny mistake with a big consequence. But does he need to be penalised for it? Well, no, because what goes around comes around in racing. That's my view. I mean, people may take a different view and they can let us know about that. Anyway. I'll say it. this. I, I think... It's very easy to see see it when it's egregious. And I think if it's egregious, let's penalize it. But if it's not egregious, let's let them race. Yeah. Agreed. Okay. The championship. Well, nothing's really changed other than Ben Yaya's lead is now only 50 points over Jorge Martin. He's 71 ahead of Bezeki. So Ben Yaya could take the next two races off. And if Martin happened to win both of those races... Martin would only simply tie him for the lead. Um, Benyaya is we're getting to tracks that the Ducati likes. We saw Benyaya go on an absolute tear through Australia, Malaysia, um, even Buriram there. So they're going to India or going to Mazano next. Uh, if Benyaya doesn't ride, no big deal. I think he's going to try. I just don't want him to hurt himself a la Mark Marquez riding with an injury, but I think he's going to try. I mean, he's got roughly four days before he's got to get back on a bike. Um, I think if he's got any amount of pain in there, park it, you have a big championship and you're probably more tied to winning it than um, to losing it. And if you simply would take and take a full two weeks of rest before heading to India, I think you're probably a smart man. Um, I would in his position, but I'm not yeah, him. And I don't I get paid to yeah. ride a motorcycle. I get paid nothing to talk about riding motorcycles, racing motorcycles. So uh, there's that. Uh, Baseki is third, as I said. Uh, Bender now fourth. Then it's Aleish jumps up uh, to fifth. Then Zarco, Marini, Vinales, Miller, Marquez, Alex, that is. Quattraro and Morbidelli is your top 12 in the MotoGP Championship. With that, I think that's it, Rich. I mean, we're, we've covered it all, talked about it all, and I see nothing else for us to do but get out of here. Yeah. Um, well, we've got Mizano coming up next weekend, haven't we? So we're yep. kind of on a run of quick successions now, so we'll try and do our best to keep on top of it. Can I just say one thing, Jim, that I didn't mention to you in our pre-recording chat, and that's just a mention to the listeners that we're going to start to introduce our show sponsor, from here on in, uh, Roadskin. Uh, hopefully, a few of you, uh, if not all of you, 
so far are following the Instagram feed. So you'll see that we've got a bit of road skin motopod gear going. We're going to ramp that up and do a few things over the off season probably. So we're going to pop a couple of little short adverts into the show going forward because that's what we need to do to take the show in the right direction. So, yep, look at road skin, but we'll start to amp that up going forward from here. So that's all I'll say for now. But hopefully there'll be some benefits to the people that subscribe to the show and um, support the show financially, certainly, as we get on into the off-season and into next year. Hmm. No better way to say it now, but now you can ride safe with the roadskin. Absolutely. Thanks, everyone.